0: Gokul Rajaram is now product engineering lead at Square, and in fact, he participated in Square's IPO Roadshow late last year. He's a previous product director for ads at Facebook and a product director for AdSense at Google, and he started his own firm Chai Labs, so... He knows his way around internet companies. This is USA Today Tech in San Francisco. I'm editor Laura Mandero, and I'm here with Shruti Gandhi, CEO of venture capital firm Array Ventures. Note, if you're listening to this in the summer of 2016, this interview was actually recorded in April of this year. Much is still the same. The stock market is quite volatile. There are very few tech IPOs, so take a listen. Okay, so... Google, you've been part of four IPOs. Um, how was the last one different? And what's your reflection on it? Would you want to do it again?
1: Thanks, Laura. Each IPO that I've been part of has been similar in some ways and different in other ways. So I was part of the Google IPO that was in 2004, the Facebook IPO in 2012, a company called Juno, an early internet provider that was in 1999, and then Square in 2015. And all of them, the difference has been the markets themselves. The markets have been different. In 1999, the markets were really exuberant. It was the first internet bubble, uh, if people remember, back all the way 17 years ago. In 2004, we had just come out of a pretty prolonged uh, recession in internet stocks, and uh, Google was the first one to open the floodgates again. Facebook in 2012 was a unique IPO, probably unique and will stay unique Uh, Because the NASDAQ came to Facebook's campus, and uh, it was a pretty uh, interesting occasion to actually see the NASDAQ chairman and CEO at the campus and ring the bell from the campus versus having to go to New York. In Square's case, we went public at an interesting time for the public markets. So again, different from all the ones. So the markets were different. But what is similar is that all of these companies, each of these companies, there is a growing up that you've got to do as part of going public. And I think the discipline of going public and being a public company is something every private company should do sooner than later. Um, I think it's been great for us to be a public company. I'm very excited to be at a public company. Uh, and I think it's we have prepared to be a public company for the last year plus, And it's great to see that work pay off. And I think the same at Google or Facebook or the other companies. It was awesome for the company, it's awesome for the employees, and it's great for us to be able to tell our story publicly. And uh, I think that's that's a huge, huge thing for shareholders, for employees, for everyone associated with the company. Uh,
2: I know you have a few words on the current market conditions and any advice you have on the companies that are trying to prepare to go public. Nutanix is one of them. Um, have, do you have any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I think um, the market right now is volatile, to put it mildly. Um, as as you know, uh, tech IPOs, there haven't been that many over the last three or four months. The number one thing, at the same time, investors value market leadership and they value companies that are not just succeeding today, but have a clear path to success over the next five to ten years. Uh, investors have seen how market leaders can cement their leadership over a period of time, and even companies that start out small can grow within five years to be five or six exercise in revenues, in profits, and in market cap. So I think the number one point piece of feedback I have for any company that's thinking of going public is, tell your story in a way that doesn't just emphasize what you're doing today, but shows investors a clear vision of the future and how you're going to be the leader. What is your basis for competition in particular? Uh, investors need to understand why you're different than everyone else in the space, why you can compete in a different way, and why you can win.
2: You know, we would love to hear how you got here and what was your vision. Um, I think TriLabs is a good good start, but if you want to go, you know, further back, tell me. But I have a lot of questions around TriLabs as well. Please tell the story.
1: Cool. Very quickly on my journey. Early in my career, I worked as a software engineer at a company called Juno, which was one of the first, it was a pioneering free internet service. Later, I joined Google as a product manager working on ads and uh, launched AdSense, which was Google's ad network. I left Google to start Chai Labs, which was bought by Facebook a couple of years later. I led the ads team at Facebook for a few years, till joining Square, where I've been for the past 18 months. So essentially, all of these roles, when I look back and look at the common thread, they've all been driven by passion, my passion for the work, my passion for the company, my passion for the mission. And um, this is true when I joined Juno, where ironically, when I look back, I had offers to join Goldman Sachs as an analyst at the same time that I was considering an offer from Juno to join as a software engineer, and the Boston Consulting Group to join as an associate mm-hmm. consultant. So I was literally considering <laughs> uh, choosing between consulting, banking, and software engineering. And I realized that from a day-to-day work point of view, I really wanted to build software. And I wanted to use all the things I'd learned in getting a couple of degrees in computer science and I went into that and I've never regretted it. So the number one advice I give to people who are early in their career is follow your passion. Follow what you really enjoy and things, good things will happen as long as you enjoy what you do on a daily basis. Even Chai Labs, I'd been at Google for five years. I was learning a lot, growing a lot, but I really, my co-founder and I had a passion for, specific, for a few specific verticals travel, local entertainment that we felt weren't served well, this was back in 2007-2008, weren't served well, uh, users were not served well by the companies that existed then that led us to start Chai Labs. So it was a passion for, for seeing a vision of the world come to reality that, that has helped me all the, all the moves I've made.
2: So Chai Labs, was, you started it in 2008 and was acquired by Facebook in 2010. Those do not sound like good years to be an entrepreneur, is that right?
1: Yes, as uh, Dickens would say, it was the best of times because there were actually great companies that were started. Um, Airbnb, Square, a bunch of companies that were started in 2008, 2010 are now really large companies. At the same time, it was the worst of times for someone who raced around, say, in late 2007 or early 2008, where it was absolute peak in terms of um, how easily you could raise funds and what terms. And then nine months later in September 2018, Lehman Brothers uh, went out of business essentially and the whole world came to an end for a few years. So I think timing matters a lot. If you started your company post Lehman Brothers, you started from a different base with very different expectations and you didn't expect to raise rounds at certain valuations and so on and everything was moderated. You were also able to find people easily. We were ironically on the other side where where we raced around in late 2007, early 2008. So we were able to raise an amazing round from incredible investors and unbelievable valuation, but then uh, we didn't actually expect that nine months later uh, there would be a deep freeze in the market. And so that that really dictated a lot of decisions we made over the next two years or so.
0: So um, right now, uh, many startups are undergoing this experience where they've raised money at high valuations, I think um, the, the culprits or the credit gets put at the uh, late stage investors um, and uh, then the next time they have to raise around or go public, I think it was the case with Square, um, the valuation is lower and th- if this is uh, maybe a somewhat analogous uh, environment to that, that period uh, post 2008, um, does it really matter? I mean, it's all kind of paper money anyway. Does it affect the way a startup has to grow? How, how do you han- handle an environment like that?
1: I think the good news is that if your fundamentals are strong, all of these things don't matter. These are all short-term fluctuations. But a lot of times, uh, founders uh, tend to confuse fundraising with success. And so there was a pursuit over the last couple of years of the term unicorn where you literally hear of folks trying to get to that billion-dollar valuation on paper where it really means nothing. And so the the one advice I have for people is, um, on one side, you do want to raise as much as you can because you don't know how conditions are going to change. There is a saying that goes uh, where if in a buffet entrees are being passed around, you always want to take as much as you can. But <laughs> yeah, on, on the other side, you don't want to confuse uh, raising, you want to, you want to divorce raising money from spending money. Just because you raise lots of money doesn't mean you need to spend all of it really fast. You need to watch every penny. You need to build a solid, fundamentally strong business that has a clear line of vision to becoming profitable. Your investors will not complain. They will love your frugality. Get hires to take more equity instead of cash comp. Do all the things, the little things that all add up. And I think a lot of founders, I think it's changing now, but over the last, whenever there's these boom periods, you confuse. Raising money with spending money, you try to conflate the two, but it's, I think you should raise as much money as you can, but you should spend as little as you can, still see, seeing a way to get profitable.
2: I think that's great advice, but one of the founders I was talking to mentioned that um, when you raise money, it's clear that you raise a big round, and frugality in the company is hard to maintain. Um so th- that's when the big couches and and uh, you know sort of machines and so forth kind of have to be provided to keep talent uh, in the market. When everyone's spending, it's hard for you to you know hold back. So how do you address that? And then to your point before, um, the valuations are high. Is there something you did? In, you know, during your time raising money, that helped you. That the companies should follow in this market.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great point that um, you know, just because you raise money, there are expectations that your employees have. Uh, there is a great quote from David Z at Greylock. He actually, I remember we were presenting to Greylock, who's one of our investors on Chai Labs. We were having a discussion around uh, Chai Labs at some point. He said, "Gokul, no company ever saved their way to greatness," and what he wanted to say was. You you shouldn't be so frugal that it's preventing you from executing on your plan. Mm -hmm. So there's a baseline set of things you need to do. You need to go hire great people for sure. That's the number one thing. And you need but you you can't overhire. I think one of the things that companies do is they overhire. You need to make sure that you really have, even on engineering, if you look at Instagram, great example. They were able to run a very large company with twelve people till they were bought by Facebook and that's that's i mean if you're running a consumer property for example you don't need 50 people a small number of engineers is perfect to run a company like that and so every you need to have a very clear role for every person and see how they're going to fig, how they're going to figure in your business and the product you're going to build uh, and what is the other question shruti
2: yeah the other question was there are companies now that have raised money with the higher valuations last year in, in when the market was good do you have any tips for, if they don't raise now, they're going to run out um, of, run, you know, of runway and probably die. Um, so how do they survive and how do they raise money in this market?
1: The good news is, if you're a market leader, you should be able to raise money. The question is going to be at what valuation. And so on one side, you've got to make sure that you're cutting out unnecessary expenses, and making sure right sizing your company's burn because burns and and how much you are spending every month in some cases did get out of hand so you want to right size that burn but then you also probably need to have more humility around accepting a valuation that might be more realistic because it turns out Every pub, The public market valuations have also come down. Multiples on revenue in, for example, the SaaS space have come down from 10x at some point to 4 or 5x. So when you look at that, it is obvious that your own valuation as a private company also needs to come down. So you need to have humility on one side and be comfortable accepting that. And you need to explain to your company. I think the thing is, a lot of people who are maybe early in their careers, they see valuation just go up. And those of us who've lived through a couple of cycles remember how things go in cycles, but people... who only only experience one cycle, they only see things go up and they are surprised and maybe shocked that valuation can actually come down and you need to understand and provide context that this is not a bad thing, this is a good thing because by raising money at a lower valuation, you're still setting yourself for long-term success because that's what matters. In the short term, as I say, the stock market is a voting machine, but in the long term, it's a weighing machine. Let's build value. Let's build something of substance, of true value, so that our weight is high. Let's not care about this voting machine in the short term. And every great company, whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, etc., when you see how they've performed as a stock over a f- period of four to five years, they've all they've all become they've all weighed uh, much higher than what they started at.
0: So um, I'm curious about your thoughts on this uh, latest generation of. Companies that has decided not to go public or has put it off, and we had um, Uber's CEO um, just reiterate again that they're not in a rush now. um, They may be particular, but they're not alone, and uh, there's certainly a longer a period of time before uh, companies go public. Um, you have been involved in a, a different generation of companies. And um, do you uh, think that they are missing out in, in some uh, crucial step? Can you sympathize with the reasoning?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen companies, I've been part of companies that went public at three years. Um, you know, Juno went public. It was formed in 95 or 96, went public in 99. Facebook was formed in 2004, in 2012, eight years. So I think every, who knows, every company has a different rationale. I think the good news is that every company does see, every company that is created, that has value um, and has impact, wants to have global impact, needs to go public. The timeframes differ. I think in some cases, people do want to make investments that are slightly longer scale and they have access to capital. And so, and liquidity might not be as much as a concern for them. So I think I I respect every company's decision. And I think ultimately, great entrepreneurs know that you're, uh, you want to build a company that's public, where you essentially can have super great impact on the world and different people, different companies take different paths together. So I'm not going to, I, I'm not in a position to criticize or critique any company. I think... I've seen literally a spectrum from three years to eight years in terms of time from form- uh, formation to going public. So I think ten plus years I think absolutely can work.
2: So you have also gone from uh, and picked really good companies to work for as well. Uh, do you have any insights on how you pick um, and choose to spend your career for the next n- number of years that you you know you you do?
1: Yes, I, I I thought about it a lot because this is something that uh, I think it's what, what, what constitutes a great company. And if you think about uh, if the way I made my decision beyond just the work itself, looking at the company is twofold. One, the mission of the company. So mission driven companies are, I think, the best companies to work for because everyone, millennials in particular, I want to work at companies that are working that are doing something bigger than yourself where you feel part of something that's bigger than just making a quick buck or making money. You want to make sure you're having you want to you want to make sure you're working at a company that has an impact on the world on people's day-to-day lives. And whether it's Google or Facebook or Square, that's even Juno, that was common. They were actually having impact on people's life. It was a product that you could feel and you could be proud of explaining to your family, your friend, your kids saying, this is what I'm doing, this is how I'm making the world a better place. And I see that with Square when I go to farmer's markets or see Square at a small business and I ask them and they, their, their face lights up because they use Square and it saves them money and it helps them literally put food on, on the table for their family. That's amazing. So mission-driven company is one. And the second one is a founder-driven company. And if you look at the great, great, great companies, tech, in technology in particular, they are founder-driven. Where the founder is the CEO, it's product-led, the founder has a vision for the world that is not expressed in money, it's expressed in a new, new way of looking at the world. Whether it was Facebook, whether Google, whether Square, whether some of the companies you mentioned like Uber, Tesla, all of these folks think about the world in terms of the mission and they live the mission. That's the other thing. Uh, None of the founders, none of the great founders I've worked with have ever mentioned the word revenue. That's the interesting thing. Revenues take care of themselves if you build a great product and you have a mission. Revenues take care of themselves. All of these things, revenues are simply the score. It takes care of itself if you do all the right things about having an amazing mission, building a great product and hiring great people. And so mission-driven, founder-driven companies are, I think, I think, hallmarks of great companies.
0: Revenues, maybe, but what about profits? And of course, Facebook and Google have been extremely profitable, but I, Amazon is this uh, interesting counter-example always. I mean, it's uh, still, just last year wasn't profitable for part of the year. So um, do you, I mean, do you, A, do you have any thoughts on Amazon, and I know be ad Square maybe that's has to be couched somewhat, but also I mean, is there still is is it just an, an exception to the rule where you can be a company that can um, be a m- relatively mature company and still not make a profit? For everybody else, the vast majority, you better have a path to sales and profits.
1: I think Amazon is one of the great companies of our time, and the reason is what they have realized, and what Jeff Bezos has realized that. It's not profit margins. I think a lot of companies try to optimize for percentage margins, but that's not what matters. What matters is the absolute dollars. Because ultimately, if you look at how companies are valued, they're valued based on discounted cash flows. So Amazon and Jeff Bezos, they focus on investments that drive cash flow. Because you can do a lot of the gap accounting to drive profits, but if you don't actually drive cash flow, all of those profits don't matter. So Amazon is very, very smart about sacrificing uh, Paper profits for true cash flows and dollars that they throw off, and uh, AWS is a great example. Amazon Web Services, where it turns out, as they started breaking out AWS, it is an incredibly profitable business. And by itself, I think New York Times ran an article in November that valued AWS at the same valuation as Intel. It was it valued AWS as 160 billion dollars wow. because they were doing seven billion in revenue a year. It was extremely profitable, not even profitable. It was throwing off a lot of cash and it was growing really fast. And if you look at Amazon's two businesses, they're actually really beautiful because the retail business um, doesn't drive as much, uh, it doesn't drive, it drives a lot of cash, uh, but it's not very profitable on a just a, just a number basis. spaces, but it, it throws off a lot of cash. But the AWS business needs a lot of cash because it's capex intensive, but is very profitable. So they complement each other perfectly. And I think... It's almost like, I think someone made a statement the other day that, um, I think it was in a public forum, that um, buying Amazon is buying Amazon stock is almost like having a little bit of every piece of the IT spend that's going on. If you think that there's $4 trillion of, or $5 trillion of IT spend that's happening around the world today, at some point, there is a massive movement towards public cloud. And Amazon is public cloud and maybe Google. But you're essentially betting on the fact that Amazon is going to have a large chunk of it and all IT infrastructure is going to go there. So it's a great way to play the movement to the cloud by buying Amazon stock. But I think I actually think they're one of the smartest companies because they focus on things that everyone else focuses on, percentage margins and gap profits, while they focus on cash flows and what really matters, which is absolute dollars thrown off versus percentages.
2: That's really good insight, actually. I'm going to go buy their stock. <laughs> just I, I just kidding. Um, actually, I want to just... Um, pick on your insights on scaling and you've been involved in many companies early, but then you've seen them grow. Oftentimes that means a lot of things in terms of it means growth, profitability, revenue, but also means culture. Have you touched upon, you know, uh, and I want to talk about a little bit that I've heard um, about your blue shoes (laughs) and you know, I would love to I know the story and, and, and the listeners will hear about it in a second. but please tell us something about them that goes along with the culture. Um, the story is one day your team all showed up in blue shoes. <laughs> and I'll, I'll let you finish it.
1: Yeah, I've basically been uh, wearing blue shoes for the last five or six years because I, um, I was in a presentation to uh, a large shoe company presenting to their CMO and they, uh, they gave me a pair of blue shoes. And I really like them. And then I I also believe in every person. And this is true at a company. Every person is an individual. So blue shoes for me are an expression of my individuality. And um, when you are a leader of a team, you want to make sure you're treating every person as an individual. And you're understanding what motivates them and what drives them. And when you talk to them and when you talk about their growth, etc., you've got to make sure you're thinking of them as an individual. So it's really an expression of individuality. Um, And it was really... It was really emotional for me that on my one year anniversary at Square, uh, there were people and I also carry around field notes um, or, or a notebook in my pocket and a pen in my pocket to take notes because I take notes on a piece of paper on, on this notebook. So literally there were people, there were three or four people on my team, uh, engineers and product people who dressed up as, as me or at <laughs> least dressed up in my outfit with my sh- I have a, I have a set of shirts with specific color uh, things because I don't want to put too much time and energy into thinking about what I wear on a daily basis and they literally got everything down to the exact brand of shoes that I have and and uh, the jeans and everything else and we took a took a joint photo but it really uh, made me feel really good about the culture we are building at the company where people felt uh, people felt um, you know people felt that I was actually a leader that they could you know they, they got value from and I, I it was it was a, I just it was one of my most memorable days at square
0: so th- it seems like um, it's it would be easier to to have that kind of culture in a small company um, when you uh, left uh, Facebook and Google they were good-sized companies uh, how uh, how did that how do you retain that culture as you scale you um, and if it wasn't you in particular, what did you witness that worked well or didn't?
1: In general, I think uh, as companies grow larger, uh, people have as much affinity to the team that they work in. So the tribal nature of culture is really important, where people feel as much affinity to, to the team versus to the, as they do to the company. So it's really important that teams are constituted and built in a way that preserves and drives culture. What does that mean? First, teams should be small. The atomic unit of team should be, uh, as again to quote Jeff Bezos, follow the two-pizza rule as much as possible, where the whole team should be able to have dinner on two pizzas. So that means probably on a, in a product development team, six to eight people, which includes a group set of engineers, which are maybe client engineers, server engineers, front-end engineers, a designer, and a product manager, or maybe a product marketing manager. So team should be small second. Every team should have a very clear sense of their mission and purpose and how it links to the company's broader mission and purpose. So they should understand how, what they work on a daily basis, feed into what the company is doing on a daily basis. And so the why of what they're doing should be very clear. And if you do those two things, and the third one is they should have autonomy to make decisions. What teams don't like is when they're handed specific execution tasks. Uh, 12 years or 13 years ago when I first became a manager, I read a book about management. I was like, I've become a manager, let me, I I got a book, uh, and I started reading it. I will never forget the first sentence of that book. It says, the number one secret to management is that people don't like being managed. And I think this is true. No one, no one likes to be managed. People like to be pushed, they like to be coached, but no one likes to be managed. And so this is true for teams also. Teams don't like, no one likes to be told what to do. They like to be given aggressive goals and the freedom to figure out how to execute to meet those goals, and that's what I want from my manager, and that's what my teams want from me, and I know that's what every single person wants. So that's it. Small teams, uh, teams that very, the why of the team should be very clear, and then the team should have uh, autonomy and not be micromanaged, but be given aggressive goals and be given freedom to pursue those goals, to hit those goals.
0: You. Um, uh could have left sort of the product side it seems like at this point and you're an investor uh, as well in companies why stay in the business in a a very hands on probably intensive at times stressful role
1: it's uh, it's again I think uh, doing something that I enjoy Uh, so I think this is when I think about what I like doing I love building products and the three or four things three or four times that I've been happiest in my career are not when a company has gone public, or not, none of those times. It's been uh, at the time when we launched a product, when we launched a product and we pressed a button to deploy code to production, and we saw the product launched, and a few minutes later, someone used it and sent us an email praising how it changed their lives or how it was a great way of looking at things. And those, those moments are what I live for, and I, I feel, I'm really lucky. feel really lucky to be working on great products that impact a lot of people and want to try to do that as long as I can.
2: Tell us about the, your acquisitions you've done, so, for example, FastBite, and, and, and is that the product you're working on as well right now?
1: Yes, I lead, uh, at Square, I lead the Caviar team. Caviar is a food delivery service. Uh, it also, it's a consumer app, but be- behind it is a pretty complex logistics backend that helps us figure out how to do mm-hmm. delivery, uh, take, a, take an order, figure out the best courier to route it to. And then the courier goes and picks up the order from the restaurant and delivers it to the customer. So it really fits with Square's mission of helping small businesses grow, because Caviar helps restaurants grow. It turns out that adding delivery to a restaurant is one of the best ways for restaurants to grow, without them needing to make further investments in table space or space in their or, or space in their <coughs> restaurant itself, or adding more waiters or servers. Uh, fastbite, we acquired a small team that is working on. A basically, instant delivery where instead of waiting 45 minutes for delivery, you could get food within 10 minutes, and so it's now part of the caviar product line. Where when you open the caviar app, you'll see Fastbite in San Francisco and Manhattan, and it's been doing well and growing fast.
2: I have to ask, and I've heard it before, and I think the audience would really enjoy hearing about your kombucha rule. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, kombucha, I say, is a drink. Uh, if you go to Whole Foods or any organic store, you'll find it's a drink made of uh, yeast where you ferment it. And uh, it's a pretty pretty amazing drink. And so uh, we have, uh, <laughs> we we created at Square, we created a decision-making framework called uh, SPADE. And if you search for S-P-A-D-E, the word SPADE, decision-making, you'll see some articles on it. Uh, we did a pretty long uh, post on it a couple of months ago. And in that, we classified decisions into uh, into important decisions and urgent decisions. And uh, those are the decisions. Important decisions are the ones for which spade, the framework needs to be used. And then we used uh, the kombucha decision as one which is the decision itself is what flavor of kombucha should I drink today? (laughs) Which many startups who have kombucha in their shelves employees probably make. Uh, We used it as an example of a not important, not urgent decision. Uh, that you should not use a framework for. But it's, uh, it's, it's definitely, it, it was more a, a fun thing and we, we periodically use it as a, as a, as a way to uh, juxtapose a more important thing with, uh, it's kind of almost the uh, uh, asymptotic version of something trivial that is probably very specific to the startup world
2: today. But is there an example you can talk about, maybe at Square or somewhere else, that you have implemented the kombucha rule and come up with a really good outcome?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the kombucha rule is almost an anti-rule where, for example, I think there was a discussion on meeting rooms <laughs> and like, you know, meeting rooms and how they should be reserved. And um, I, th- I don't remember if it was a square or at Facebook. I, I really think meeting room discussions should be handled in a very simple way. There doesn't need to be a big framework for how to allocate or how to reserve meeting rooms. And so I think a simple email to the company can help just clarify that.
2: So... Coming from where you have been in all these uh, amazing companies now, what advice do you have for a new grad today um, in two aspects? One, what should they study? And two, when they get out, where should they join a big company, small company, start something?
1: What should they study is a tough one. I, I think follow your passion is always a good piece of advice when studying something. At the same time, I think uh, in, in technology in particular, I think there are two specific skill sets that I've seen generally be successful. One of them is an analytics, a skill set of skill sets is grounded in analytics and data. And the second set of skill sets is one that's grounded in technology itself, technology or product development or engineering. So I would really uh, uh, you know, humbly uh, advise people to whatever you study, try to see if you can build um, or do a minor, or some way to either build an analytics, a data mindset, or a data set of sk- a skill sets focused on data, or a skill set, focused on, set of skill sets focused on engineering, building things. So either analyzing things or building things. And in terms of what job you should take right out of school, follow your passion. Again, if you follow your passion, and you work on, and, and ideally try to work at a mission-driven, founder-driven company, you will not go wrong. I work at a company whose mission you believe in. Because remember, a job is not just about the glamour of accepting an offer and telling your family and friends you accepted an offer from XYZ company. It's about coming into work every single day for the next four to five years, more likely than not, and being infused and excited to wake up in the morning and looking forward to your job and not dreading that you've got to go into work. And that's only possible when it's not about the money, but it's about being part of something larger than yourself when you feel that you're you're doing something that's impacting the world and you feel good about it.
0: All right, Google. thank you so much for joining us. That um, is a, a lot of insight, and um, I think people will find it um, very telling. Um, you can uh, check out the rest of these uh, podcasts at USA Today Um Uh, forward slash tech there'll be a story up and also on SoundCloud um, if you search for USA Today Tech and uh, Entrepreneur. Uh, Gokul what's the best way to follow you?
1: It's uh, Twitter it's at Gokul R G-O-K-U-L-R.
2: And Shruti? It's at A-T-S-H-R-U-T-I. Thanks for listening.